Hi, this is Patrick Inhofer with TowelColor.com, and we are back on the podcast, and I am here talking on Skype with Sam Meskman from LumaForge. And those of you who are regular subscribers to the newsletter may have seen that we've got a new sponsor on the newsletter, and it's LumaForge. And so I thought I'd get Sam on the horn here to talk a little bit about what it is they do and why they're on the newsletter, because they're solving a problem that, frankly, uh, is a thorn in my side. It's probably a thorn in your side, and you may not even realize it, and that's hard drives. And so, Sam, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Well, Patrick, it's my pleasure. I've been a fan for a long time. So, you know, uh, what you've been doing at the Tau, uh, it's it's funny to actually now sort of talk to you uh, when, like, you know, you're just a little colorist uh, in a room, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And, like, I, I get this sometimes where it's, like, people sort of, you know, talk to you, but you've always been, like, one of those guys for me. You actually taught me resolve, you know, so. Oh, well, that's kind of cool to hear. Uh you know, I never get tired of, you know, sometimes you wonder you're sitting back here on this side of the screen and you have no idea how people are taking your information and using it. And it's nice to hear that you found it useful. Yeah, more than useful. Uh, it is It is actually, you know, it's it's helped me build a career. So, you know, it's uh, it has been a, um, you know, I've gotten more out of your newsletter. And, and frankly, it's one of the reasons we wanted to do that in the first place is because, you know, it's brought a lot of um, knowledge and awareness my way. So, you know, when we're looking at things that we want to do on the marketing side, I mean, why not support the things that have helped you along the way? Oh, well, thank you very much. And so let's talk about your career. Before we get into LumaForge and why you founded that company, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got there, how you got into this business. And so it sounds like you were a on the creative side of this before you got more kind of on the technical side. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is I'm actually a filmmaker uh, before I'm an editor or a colorist. I mean, you know, it's it's the one thing you learn really quickly uh, when you decide you want to get into the business as a director is that you better have a way to pay the bills. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> so... You know, a, a lot of, you know, I, I, I graduated in 2002 and I got very, uh, I, I've always sort of gravitated towards the post side of things because uh, I, I think I like the control you have in the edit room versus, you know, necessarily the chaos that you have on set yeah. um, or theoretical. I mean, sometimes you the chaos bleeds into the, the edit room, but, um, you know, the it's always sort of been my like lane you know everybody has their thing that their you know i think personality is suited for so editing and color was just something that i was kind of at home with and um you know i got into the final cut thing because we had Av avid in um at school but you know you if i didn't want to edit at school i needed to have something at home so i you know I sort of got into Final Cut at the beginning and was able to to set up a freelance edit career on that. And I also had my own, um, you know, movies. Like we had a little film collective in New York that, that we did a lot of... I mean, you always try and keep the dream going, you know, which is like actually making your own content, your own yeah. work. And, and that was where, you know, I found I always learned the most stuff anyway. And I would just apply that when... Uh, 
I was actually doing freelance jobs and, you know, and, and those would be corporate. It would be basically whatever anyone would pay you to do. You know, you're just like, yeah, I can do that. And then you'd figure it out. Um, and so the, you know, I, I did that and I did a, a documentary, a feature link documentary was the first big thing I did, uh, in New York. And then that immediately led to, um, a independent feature film, uh, that we shot in 2000, I think it was 2008, 2007, 2000. I can't even remember, but it was called How I Got Lost. And it was our first like attempt at like a real, real project with like a budget. And we cashed in every favor and we shot in two time zones. And I was the producer, editor, and uh, eventually colorist, even though I had no idea really how to do <laughs> color correction um, at the time. And we, I think we might have actually been the first film to shoot with uh, the red camera on the independent side. Like we were the right. first, of course, right. we didn't use that for marketing at the time because we didn't, we weren't that smart, but we were, <laughs> we were working with like build 15 of the red. And that was really my crash course was that movie in terms of teaching myself all of these, like the intricacies of codex color spaces all of these things and and what it all really comes down to is it came out of necessity because i couldn't afford to actually pay anyone to do it right right and and so you know we shot in 4k and i had to figure that out with apple color with the old version of red cine and that was that was a long part of my life and then you know what happens once you actually get through that experience is you realize that you now know how to deliver a feature film yeah and so that was sort of my lane for a while where I could either, you know, you could hire me as a freelancer on the edit side, but like where my sort of, you know, niche business was, was finishing independent films or projects or, you know, for larger producers who are looking for a budget solution, I was able to deliver, you know, feature films that would pass QC, you know, would go to Lifetime or, you know, like little Disney movies or whatever those were. I mean, whatever sort of came through, there was a few different producers that I sort of worked with. And I was like their little ace in the hole on the color correction side. And and, and did you so were you specializing? I mean, did you take that red that experience with red and turn that kind of into specializing in red workflows or in data driven workflows? Oh yeah. I mean, that was, red was my lane, you know, for a while. Like I, I was one of the few people who knew how to finish a red movie and actually get into the raw and deliver something that was like, you know, this red camera is a great thing, except, you know, when you've transcoded everything to ProRes and you need to get back to the raw and you've got to do the conform dance, especially in the final cut seven days to get to color and all of these things. Yeah. It took a lot of knowledge, you know, and very few people I think had that knowledge because they hadn't really done it so you know i think the i was able to do things because i'd been through the process that was a big need for people who had spent all the money to take advantage of this high-end camera and now um needed someone who actually knew how to like bring it out well because it's kind of interesting because i can already see the seeds of uh you know kind of where you sprouted uh, to end up at LumaForge working with, you know, high throughput shared storage because these workflows are all about moving large amounts of data from place to place through machines, spitting out of machines, 
Uh, and I'm sure that that's probably where you found these, all of these initial problems as you were developing these workflows. Yeah, I mean, it's all been born out of like, you know, a decade's worth of tearing my hair out. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, yeah. like, cause I was actually the DIT on how I got lost. And, you know, when you're doing an independent feature, you've got a few G raids and you're pulling stuff in off these cards and I'm the DIT and I'm dragging the stuff over. And, you know, I've got crew that are stepping over cords and like, you know, it's, it's really, you don't know what you're doing. Um, and, and then eventually you start to figure out what you're doing and, and you're like, well, how come I can't play this red file back? off this drive, you know, like I'm not, I was not a technical person by choice. Right. <laughs> but mostly the, the problem that's all born out of like, why am I having this problem? There has to be a solution to this. People must actually do this in the real world. Otherwise they wouldn't sell these products. Right. And, and so once you start, you know, so I, I've always been like kind of the, the type of person that wanted to improve my knowledge because at the end of the day, I'm really just trying to make my own movies and I want to figure out how to do that at a budget that is manageable for me because, you know, when you're broke, you need, you need to find ways to get things done. And, and so that's where I was for a while, you know, trying to, to work my way up and, and pretty soon you learn what the strategies are to get a lot done for not a lot of money. So now... So you're working uh, freelancing mostly as a Final Cut guy, or were you also doing Avid? Final Cut to Color was the big change for me. Right. So I was mixing Avid in initially in my freelance career, and once Color hit and I saw what I could do with it, I kind of left the Avid platform entirely because it, it wasn't really my lane anymore. You know, So I would go in and I knew Final Cut backwards and forwards so I could deliver any sort of edit, and my secret weapon was then, well, then I could just go finish in Color and round trip back, and I'd be done, you yeah. know? And yeah. I could keep that either in-house or I could, you know really improve what I was doing for my clients when I would go into the facility. Between then and now, we had this thing happen called Final Cut 10. <laughs> and of course, Apple got killed, uh, Apple Color got killed. Uh, Final Cut 10 came on the scene. And how did you manage that transition? Well, you know, I think I saw the initial launch like everybody else yeah. um, and got really excited. I think a lot of people got you know, appalled, but I actually got excited because <laughs> I was like, this looks really cool, you know? And, and so I downloaded it and did like a little project on it and had all sorts of problems like everyone else did. <laughs> and, you know, basically was like, well, this is clearly not ready for prime time. But I think unlike a lot of people, like I, I like to tinker and like mess with things because I saw certain things in there that I like, this is really interesting. You know, I wasn't turned off by the fact right away that it didn't work. And I think I got that from my experience with the red, which was like, I, I kind of was like, well, you know, the red worked, it was just really hard. So for me, when something's really hard, like there must've been a reason they did this. Right. And then, you know, I came back to it, you know, when, when multicam support came out and I tried it again and it was a little bit better, but it still had some problems, but I was never using it on customer facing work. I was still purely in Final Cut 7 color world for that, for the initial period. Gotcha. And that was also, um, I think, right around when uh, Black Magic bought DaVinci. Yep. yep. Yeah, just as color got killed, I mean, the transition, 
uh, it couldn't have happened any better for Black Magic and Da Vinci for Color to die at just that moment when they were releasing the 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 Mac version of yeah, uh, I, Da Vinci Resolve. I mean, I was kind of patient zero for that because yeah. you know uh, I can't get to Color anymore through Final Cut Ten, which yeah. makes it kind of useless because the in once you start using curves and some of these other things, you look at the Final Cut Ten color tools and you're like, this doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I basically was like, well, but I can get in there through Resolve. And, and now look how cheap Resolve is. And then that's how I found Tower Color because I think Resolve 9, you were one of the few people who had the Resolve 9 training. And yeah. so I got going with that. And then, you know, I realized that like I could, and everyone always, you know, used to look down on Apple Color anyway. And they were like, oh, it's not a Da Vinci, you know? <laughs> exactly. And then Da Vinci comes out. And it's like, well, now it is a Da Vinci, you know? And, and so I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> if I learned Da Vinci, it can work. And, you know, and I can get there from Final Cut 7 now. And it's a big value add that I was like, oh, now I'm a real colorist because I'm on a Da Vinci, you know? And like, <laughs> it's, you know, so it's it's just sort of funny. I mean, I did a, a lot for business reasons initially because, uh, and then as I got deeper into Final Cut 10 and that started to improve, I literally was able to sort of build my own little post house around Final Cut 10 and resolve workflow. And I was working faster and easier than I ever had because I was able to work with 4K native red raw files. And because red was sort of my lane, uh, I could just get that right into Resolve and, you know, link right up to it and finish, and it was great. Yeah, and, and that's and one of the things that I'm not sure people are aware of is just how tight uh, the XML integration between Final Cut 10 and Resolve has become. I mean, it's clear that the two companies have been working very closely uh, to try to make that as seamless as possible, especially considering they're kind of using two different paradigms in terms of what a timeline is. Although, if you're noticing, uh, Resolve is starting to look more and more like Final Cut 10 in a lot of the editing things that they're doing. Um, yeah, they definitely have adopted some of that, yeah. Um, but that said, too, there's also, you know, I would, I would be the first to tell you that it is not the world's cleanest workflow between Final Cut 10 and Resolve. But it's not the world's clean... I, I don't know. I guess I get more frustrated as time goes on by, by conform issues yep. now. Yep. And, you know, I, I know there's certain issues like and especially the more features you add inside an NLE when you need to get to another application, it becomes really hard to round trip back to some of these things. Yep. And so my biggest issue is, do I want to finish in Resolve now and never go back to Final Cut 10 and just export an, uh, an individual source file? Or do I want to go through the hoops of getting back to my old Final Cut to color round trip? So I can keep some of my transitions and not have to bake in my visual effects and some of these other things that I'm doing. And it's sort of like a, a constant balancing act that I think people really need to plan for. And also they should really go through the experience to know what does and doesn't work when the XML carries over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, as a colorist, you know, my first thing I always test is that round trip workflow. I mean, before I, I grade a single shot, uh, I just make sure that if I run it through Resolve and spit it back to Final Cut 10, uh, does everything look the same? <laughs> yeah. Because if not, you got to solve that. Otherwise, you're going to be up against a deadline and not realize you needed another half day to solve some problems. Well, and that's really the biggest thing is like, you know, the, the color tools inside Resolve are so comprehensive once yeah. you get there. Yeah. And, and 
I think what it really comes down to now is like, what is the size of the job you're doing and does it merit the round trip or not? Yep. And I think on the narrative side, absolutely. It pretty much always does. Like it's a lot easier to do narrative, but if you're in the documentary world, this can be extremely difficult because you're dealing with so many different formats and God knows what they've done in that timeline. Yeah, it's true. You're dealing with different formats, maybe different pixel aspect ratios, different frame rates, uh, different frame sizes, and it can be a real mess. Not to mention you start throwing in still images uh, that are animating and you get all sorts of translation, translation problems where the conform really is the toughest part often of a color job. And of course, we always know how organized our clients are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you love them and you hate them, don't you? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if they were more organized, I guess they wouldn't need you. But if they, you know, it's it's so weird. I don't know. It's, it's a very strange uh, place to work. But I do find that, like... At least for my own projects, things have never been smoother because I'm, I'm sort of controlling that experience in and out. And so, you know, for me, what I, I think I'm probably most excited about is it seems like we're starting to enter a world where it's a lot easier to get from place to place now. And yeah. s since we're dealing with a lot more, in a lot of cases, original media, uh, you don't have to. That was the hardest part in the, the Final Cut days is when, you know, the editors would, you know, transcode down to 1920 and 1080, and that would have no resemblance to what that 4K footage was they shot on the sizing side. Right. And you had to go and, like, adjust the sizing and figure out how that would work, you know, across all of your clips and, and match back to what they'd done in the edit. And, and sometimes they would even rename their files for some bizarre reason, and then there was no way back. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait a second, your proxies are named different than your camera. Really? You <laughs> thought that was a good idea, did you? So, you know, there's there's so many, and I think that's the biggest thing in post in general that I know at LumaForge we're, we're trying to really solve is how do you get some of this technical stuff out of the way on the workflow side uh, and we've really approached it from that perspective on the storage end to make make it easy. Like a color job, in my opinion, should be a creative endeavor as opposed to a lesson in managing codecs. Oh, uh, totally, yeah. yeah. And so that's what we're really trying to facilitate, you know, when it comes to shared storage, because that's another thing that we've run into, which is like the second you try and work with two editors off the same hard drive, um, in many cases, you need a degree in astrophysics. Well, now let's get into this a little bit. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about where LumaForge started. So you're you're a colorist, you're uh, a filmmaker, you're a workflow specialist. So people will hire you out in any or maybe multiple of these capacities. At what point did you decide? You know what? I want to take on Lassie. I want to take on you know name your big. I want to take on ISIS, right? I want to do what it seems to be impossible to do, which is really complicated, shared storage, multiple systems without dropping frames. You know, for me, storage has always been, there are really two things that kind of annoy me uh, as a colorist. I'm a technical guy. It's, it's GPUs and storage, both of mm -hmm. which have an inordinate effect on how I interact and how my equipment interacts back with me. Yep. Both of which, when you have problems, 
it's non-obvious where the problem is. <laughs> yes. Right? And, and it is completely not obvious. Um, and also, in many cases, it may be on the application side. And it may have nothing to do with your storage. I, you know, the, but in some cases, it may have everything to do with your storage. And if you're not technical, or even if you are technical, but you're not technical on a certain part of your hardware, you know, you, I get... I don't know. I can go off down the rabbit hole. I'm going to try not to. Um, but to answer your, your, your question, which is how did this happen? Just so you know, I have zero passion for shared storage. <laughs> I, I, I mostly look at it as this problem um, that, that really needs to be solved. And, and the reason it became a problem for me was um, I actually started LumaForge. I'm actually not the founder of LumaForge. Neil Smith is actually the founder of LumaForge. And when I had come on, but but now we've sort of re and now technically I'm a founder because we relaunched a new company and all this stuff. But blah blah blah. But way back when, you know, I when I initially met Neil, Neil and I were doing a lot of like 4K stuff. This was a few years ago when like 4K was on the horizon and and 3D was starting to fade a little bit. And you know, and and I was doing 4K stuff on Final Cut 10 and sort of frankly using that to build my. I, I've kind of figured out that if you put your knowledge out there for free in a lot of cases, it may lead to more work than, than you had ever anticipated. And so I, like I saw, I got lucky enough to go work with the um, Apple guys for a little while and came out and I was like, I'm going to start my own final cut 10 post-production house. And I'm just going to live in this world. I'm going to see how far I can get before I run out of money. You know, I was actually able to start thriving and, you know, I came across Neil who had Hollywood DI and LumaForge was his technology company. And so we sort of partnered up and started doing some seminars. And the next thing I knew, I found myself demoing shared storage at the Exasan booth three years ago, demonstrating uh, 4K Red Raw across multiple machines in Final Cut 10. I think I was like, people would have like come by and be like, what, what program is that? Because nobody was doing anything in Final Cut 10 and I'm sitting there doing shared storage off of it because I was the only guy that like was using it really right. at least on the on the professional side and like I, did, I guess I didn't even realize how weird that was um, but <laughs> but that was my first trip to NAB but then what started to happen was okay I could get this playback sometimes but then sometimes I couldn't and I could I had no understanding of how shared storage operated. So the second you start to see this ghost in the machine behavior, like how come this isn't working? This works sometimes. It's just worked on the other machine. Why isn't it working now? Everybody says their specs should this should work. So, you know, then you realize that the real secret to all of this is that everybody's spec sheets are lies. Right. Nobody's spec sheets live in the real world. Um, and very rarely are manufacturers really testing their hardware the way their clients are going to be using the hardware. Oh, man. And this is, this is especially true in storage. Um, you know, I remember in 2002 when I was putting together my first SCSI hard drive, a whole 500 gigs, cost $6,000. I bought it from a, I don't even remember the name of the company anymore. They're, I, I hope they're not in our business anymore. And, uh, and their big thing was we do massive amounts of storage for big data. 
And what you guys are doing is just a subset of that. We Our specs are like multiple times over the throughput you need. This is going to work great. And it never did. After six months of pulling my <laughs> hair out, I had to trash the damn thing and actually look for storage designed with our specs in mind. I didn't go to uh, some off-brand guy who thought, you know, because he's doing it for the banks, he can do it for us. What is the difference? What's the deal uh, with that? Okay, so here's the thing. So when you say banks, right, this is, this is the reason it works with banks. Banks deal with really, really small files right. and deal with lots of transition. And it's lots of data, but it needs to be small amounts of data going really fast. Right. When you start talking media, it's completely the opposite. And so you're dealing with massive chunks, and it keeps getting bigger, you know, 4K, 6K, 8K. And you're dealing with these giant chunks of media that now need to be pushed through a pipe. And, okay, you may have, coming out of your box, 8,000 megabytes a second worth of hard drives. However, what sort of pipe are you trying to push it through? And then is it going through a switch, which is going to do its own thing? And then is it going to, how is it connecting up to your computer? And is that driver optimized? And then is your application responsive to the way you have connected all of this stuff up? And is it even supported? And so there's all of these different layers where things can go wrong. And then what ends up happening is you go to these manufacturers and, and they just get confused. And they're like, well, what are you working with? Oh, it must be their problem. They're, they're not doing right. something right. Right, right. Because they've never opened up that application in their lives. And right. they probably aren't even using the type of computer you're using. And who knows whether that, you know, whether that application works with SANS, whether it works with a NAS, whether it works with NFS, SMB, AFP. Like, what is it doing well? Is it compatible with this version of the OS, which, by the way, keeps changing all the time? You know, I mean, you look at XSAN, right? And, like, you, I mean, if, you try, if you've tried to build an XSAN, the hilarious thing is, like, on the the amount of IT knowledge you need to even make an XSAN work, which by the way has a GUI that lies to you. It lies to you? Yeah, it's not accurate. The GUI on XSAN <laughs> is not actually accurate. If you're like, there are cases where you may have a, a an MDC that has gone down and it's telling you it's working, you know, and like, <laughs> and and you have like, I mean, there's these things called LUNs and all of this other stuff that's just layered on top of this. And and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being on shared storage where you push the space bar and you see a beach ball before yeah. it starts playing back. Absolutely. The most maddening thing in the world. And this yep. actually was my, my quest sort of became at the, at, to find something that when I push the beach ball, or when I push the space bar, I wouldn't see a beach ball. Right. And then you really start to peel away the layers and you start to figure out why the beach ball happens. And it's this thing called latency. Right. So on an XSAN, for instance, first off, it's built on a very old file system, but there's a lot of different things that happen as your media travels from the drives where it's stored on all the way out to your machine that cause latency. And the path that happens is specifically for an XSAN is you have a LUN, which is basically, you know, you have multiple LUNs and you can do it however you want. And LUNs are basically just a series of drives configured in a, it's like a RAID sort of. Right. And those have a certain amount of bandwidth. And then that's going to shoot out with from your chassis, your hardware based LUNs are going to shoot out. Basically it's going to pass through a switch and an MDC. 
And basically the MDC, depending on how you've set that up, is gonna be at one speed. And depending on how that's configured, it's gonna do various things. Then it's gonna shoot out to another place, which is the switch, which is going to feed out to your different clients over a certain type of cable that you've specified. So you may have 8,000 megabytes a second, but if you're going out over gigabit ethernet, that's gonna narrow you, that pipe right there is gonna narrow you down to 100 megabytes a second. So it doesn't matter how much throughput in the world you have, it's only gonna play back at 100 megabytes a second when it comes through, or it's gonna be um, over fiber. There's different levels of fiber. But the key thing is the reason you see the space bar is because your information is passing through a lot of different things before it actually hits your client, which then is a lot of lead time. And if it's large files, and the larger the files you get, the harder it's gonna pull on this system that was never designed to do the things you're trying to do with it. it so was in other words, that whole system's essentially designed for banks doing lots of small transactions as opposed to us where we're pulling large files with all this large bits of data that are also sequential in nature, right? They can't be randomized. They all got to come back in the right order that, that they need to be. Um, passing through all this equipment that really is optimized for all these tiny little transactions and that all adds up to this latency problem. The Not only that, but the way that editors work is that they're constantly digging in and touching things and moving things that are all, you know, giant pieces of media that, like, they might drag out a couple frames, and that's, like, a thing. And now when you start adding in things like Final Cut Pro, which, believe it or not, it, it has this reputation that it is... This, was, this is where LumaForge happened, actually. I did the movie Focus, which was the, the first feature film to be, you know, edited at a studio level with Final Cut 10. Yeah, Will, was, Will Smith, right? They, they, and that, there was yep. a lot of PR around that. Yep, and yep. We, uh, we were the guys that did the X-Hand for it. Oh, cool. And uh, we also, and I was like the workflow consultant and, and all of this stuff, and it was sort of my opportunity to bring a Final Cut 10 workflow to, you know, a studio. And they wanted to work in 2K with their originals. Most right. avid systems are working in proxy mode, which is why on an ISIS and some of these things, like they're they're transcoding down, you know, to a low res version, and that's what they're going to pull from, and they're going to do these VFX pulls, and it's all they have a whole thing that they do. But then Final Cut wants you to work with your original media, right? And suddenly you're dealing with an environment where Final Cut 10 libraries have tons of analysis files, and they have tons of render files, and it loves high performing SSDs. And it loves to be the faster and more responsive your storage is, which is SSDs, the better experience you're going to see with Final Cut. Shared storage is not built on any of that. Of course not. And so you start putting these things that have, like, it's like putting uh, a Formula One racing car on, like, a tar road, you know? <laughs> Where, like, it's just paved with tar, and then it starts going really slowly, and you're like, what's the problem? It's not the car. Right. The problem is the road. Right. And, and so we didn't know that at the time. I mean, we sort of, like, we found that, oh, how come our libraries are performing better when it's off the local storage, and it references the media? And then even then, you would still see a beach ball and some of this other stuff. And what we would keep hearing as well is, you know, you look at these, these systems, and shared storage is a very expensive proposition, so people have these massive networks that they have in place with all of these drives and all of these specs and all of these things. And, and I 
you know, as part of FCP Works, which is our workflow consulting company, we would go to all of these different places and, and they'd have these networks or, and, and, you know, systems in place and they'd be having problems with Final Cut 10 and they'd be like, well, it's obviously Final Cut 10 that doesn't work. Um, like, obviously, you know, this, it's not performing. We have this great setup that we paid a lot of money for and, you know, it's not working. How could, so clearly we can't use this program. We, and you see that you keep seeing this ghost in the machine and then you hear from the other side of people like, hey, I really just need an affordable solution to connect up a few editors. Right. And, you know, and I you keep hearing this over and over and over again. And, you know, none of the existing players offer really an affordable solution. And I'm like, why is this the case? There's a lot of cheap shared storage solutions, but every time I'd try one, it wouldn't work with Final Cut 10. And, and it wouldn't work with some of these things. And I'd see latency. And, you know, everyone tells you if you want to do shared storage right, you have to spend a lot of money and, and do this sort of thing. And, you know, and, and you believe that because you can't prove it otherwise. So I had actually left LumaForge for about a year and, you know, and Neil and I were friends and we're on good terms that I hadn't seen him for a while. And I, I looked him back up and, you know, I wanted to actually do a podcast with him. And, um, you know, I caught back up with him and he, you know, started telling me about some of the stuff he was doing with 10 gig Ethernet. And the system that he'd sort of found. And I was like, wait a minute. So what are you doing? And you're doing this and you can you can do this. Can you actually show this to me? Because I'd literally spent the last year looking for exactly what he'd done. And so I got in there and we started playing with it. And if you saw the prototype for this, I mean, like, Neil is uh, Doc Brown from Back to the Future. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, literally, if you saw the prototype, it had tinfoil on it. And uh, I think there, like, there was string tying something together. <laughs> and, like, it was, um, I think in one case, there, I, I feel it wasn't bubble gum. It was some other sticky substance that he had, like, you know, that was, that had something stuck together. It was, let's, and, and it was an open container with a few drives in it and a few things going on in there. Like, you know, I don't really know. I, I didn't know at the time how any of that hardware stuff I'm, a, I'm an editor i'm a colorist you know yeah. it's not that's not my lane but i did know what i needed out of you know performance wise to make this stuff work and i needed something that worked with final cut 10 in a shared environment really well with no excuses so that i could go and like actually do this and, and deliver the experience i know i wanted to have and that i was getting off of you know a, a direct attached client that's where the genesis of it was and we started dialing in and we started really beating on this in the lab and putting it through real world things and testing drivers and testing different pieces of equipment because neil literally has everything under the sun it's like you know the the it's literally it is it's the back to the future lab in there that's and um so we just started banging on this and then we brought eric in who's our cto and um you know we we kept running into problems that would be, okay, well, this manufacturer makes this driver, and then when I plug this adapter into it, performance drops to here. And finally, we figured out a system after a lot of testing where we did our demo to announce the share station of 84 streams of 4K across six machines. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw that demo. It's remarkable. How much bandwidth are you pushing through when you're doing that? Uh, I think somewhere between four and 6,000 megabytes a second. And that's just, and that's remarkable. And, and you're doing this, uh, is the secret to this sauce, like number one, we're on 10 gig uh, ethernet. Is that the, is that? 
No, 10 gig ethernet is just a connection. And that's the big misconception is a lot of people think if they connect something up over Thunderbolt, they're gonna suddenly get the max Thunderbolt speed. So when you connect up your little lacy Thunderbolt drive, that's, you know, the lacy rugged that has a Thunderbolt port. Yep, yep. People are like, well, it's Thunderbolt drive. It should be fast. No, it's not fast. It's slow, you know, unless there's an SSD in there, at which point you're going right. to be limited. You're never going to saturate that Thunderbolt. It's just a connection. Right. And it's the same thing with 10 gig Ethernet. It's just the size of a pipe. The question is, how much water are you really sending it through? And is it going to be gated on either side from where it's coming out to where it's going? So, so if I'm, if I were, so in your solution, Am I running through some sort of special switches? Do I have some sort of special adapters I'm using? I mean, no. Uh, so okay. that was the other big breakthrough is we realized that the more impediments you put between the machine and the computer, the more latency you were going to add to things. And the more the more avenues you would have to slow things down and limit your responsiveness. Hmm. So it became about building direct connections to the various clients pretty much directly to the motherboard. So you're going from the motherboard, feeding out bandwidth in, you know, the, the same file system that banks use to send out transactions you're using off the share station to connect up to your client. So it's extremely efficient and modern. And um, we optimized that. And then we started optimizing drivers and we started optimizing connections on the client and, and sort of doing this stuff in the background so that we could deliver a reproducible experience for the end user where they didn't have to do a whole bunch of tinkering. So if I get a jellyfish um, and a LumaForge jellyfish and I put it into my room, I, do I have special drivers I need to install, software I need to install? Well, it depends on what your, your connection is going to be. If you're connecting up over gigabit, uh, the only thing you'll need is our share client app. And you'll be able to get... Uh, through an Ethernet cable, direct into the back, you know, 100 megabytes a second, but it'll feel like it's an SSD over 100 megabytes a second. So you can do, without much latency, seven streams of ProRes 422 in 1080, just over through an Ethernet cable. Wow. Um, and it's going to be responsive. You're going to have the same, more or less the same level of responsiveness that you would have over 10 gig. Slightly less, but like, you know, within, certainly you're not going to see the, the beach ball when you push the space bar. Everything's going to get optimized through the share client app where you're going to select the, say, you, you've got it connected in through the Ethernet cable and you're going to select the Ethernet adapter right in the share client app. You're going to enter in your user number. You're going to hit initialize and it's going to configure your client for the, around the share station signal. And then you're going to see the volume pop up. You're going to hit mount and then you can even configure auto mount and spotlight index right through the app and no driver, nothing necessary. And everything's gonna be optimized. We, we have taken sort of the IT tinkering and we put our own settings in there and we've configured everything to do that. And then on the 10 gig side, all you're gonna need is the 10 gig uh, driver for your adapter. And some adapters work better than others. Right. So we sell our own, which is gonna guarantee you the performance that we like. And the only reason we sell it is so that we can ensure a quality experience. Right. Uh, cause, but there are other adapters that work well and you know, we can tell you in our tests what we've seen and you're going to install the driver for the adapter and you're going to do the exact same process where you're going to select the adapter in the share client app. It's going to initialize it to the correct settings and you're going to see anywhere from depending on what type of machine you're connected on a Thunderbolt Mac 700, 
to around 1100 megabytes a second over a 10 gig connection. And the old school Mac Pros, which are on a PCI2 bus, you're gonna see between 450 and 650 megabytes a second directly over a 10 gig connection. That's pretty fantastic. Now, what? Now, just for people who aren't familiar and versed with uh, the transfer speeds in different types of connections, so if I'm going over Thunderbolt, what would I typically expect, uh, or even over, let's say, USB? You can't go faster over a Thunderbolt direct attached connection uh, than really 12 or 1300 megabytes a second. Period. Like okay. that's where it caps out. It right. says it's rated for two gigabytes a second, but that's not actually true. Right. You can't do that in the real world. Uh, and then over an Ethernet protocol, you're going to see some overhead. There's going to be some driver things, and things are going to happen. So you're going to get about between 700 and 1100, depending on the type of machine you have over the Mac on the Thunderbolt side. And that's really, at a certain point, you're limited by the Thunderbolt bus and the 10 gig a second pipe that's coming off the Ethernet. So basically, 1,100 megabytes a second is pretty much about as fast as 10 gig Ethernet can go. And, you know, if you had a full pipe or, for instance, there was 40 gig Ethernet coming in through a uh, Thunderbolt 2 Mac, you're going to see maybe 1,200 megabytes a second. Gotcha. Even if you had a larger pipe feeding into it because you're gonna, at a certain point, you're gated by the Thunderbolt port. Right. And also, depending on which Mac you're using, some work better than others. So, and then on the PC side, though, for instance, uh, we can run 40 gig Ethernet direct to the PC. You know, we're actually, frankly, still optimizing it. But on a direct attached PC, you can get anywhere from 1,300 to 2,500 megabytes a second direct over 40 gig to your client. And we're working on improving that. But that opens up the world of 4K DPX and OpenEXR for our customers. Right. Right, and of course, that's on the PC side. So for PC, us and, heads, PC and Linux. Yeah, yeah, so us Mac heads were like, oh man, just another reason but to start looking over. You're going to start looking over, but then what you're also, it would, it would shock me if Apple didn't adapt Thunderbolt 3, which is built on the 40 gig Ethernet spec. Right. right. At which point, I can do the same exact thing over a Thunderbolt 3 to Ethernet adapter, you know, like, uh, and, and that's where things get really interesting. I mean, realistically, for 95% of what most editors do, 10 yeah. gig Ethernet is just fine. If you're in the VFX world, and you're looking to bump up to VFX, you know, like on, on the 40, like on the 4k DPX and EXR side, which is where or on the resolve side, if that's where you're working, you're um, gonna need the bigger pipe if you want to do that. And that comes with pluses and minuses, but you know, realistically you can do that now over with, with a direct 40 gig ethernet connection. But then just because you have that connection, your server needs to be optimized to actually deliver that amount of throughput to multiple users. And this is where a lot of the other manufacturers break down because they're using the wrong file system or they put bad parts into the, the actual thing. And it's that, you know, it's this, and at a certain point, we've literally looked at pretty much every part on the market and selected one and found the, the configurations that work for what editors are trying to do with them in their markets. And that's kind of just how we built this. So, so uh, I pick up a, a LumaForge um, shared storage solution. So what I'm getting isn't just a bunch of hard drives uh, striped together. 
I'm also getting kind of a server layer on top of that that talks to multiple clients. Yeah, that's exactly it, which okay. is, you know, in a, like you can do, you can put, to, you know, stripe a bunch of SSDs together and deliver the t types of speed that I'm talking about to one client. Right. But when you start talking two or more clients, that's when a whole lot of other factors come into play. And that's where optimization and file system and components and NICs and processors and all of these other things start to play in to the real world performance that you're going to see across multiple machines. Right. And let's talk a little bit about SSDs versus spinning platters. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So... So as a colorist, you know, that's always a little confusing. I, I know that on my boot drive, I've got SSDs. I also know that I've had more failures on my SSDs over the last four years than I ever had off of my spinning platters. Um, and I just make sure I have everything backed up and, you know, I, it's usually under warranty and I get a new one. Uh, what's the deal with that? And, and are, are SSDs really reliable enough? Uh, are we are we doing things to those SSDs that other people aren't um, and that yes. make them less compatible for me. Well, purposes. also, realistically, it's not SSD. So not every SSD was created equal. Okay. Um, and the cheaper SSDs especially are not designed for lots of writes and rewrites. Right. Um, so, you know, if you're going to start doing, if you're going to start using SSDs, you need to make sure, like, usually you get what you pay for. And the reality is, you know, it's not very transparent in terms of which SSDs that you need to buy. But if you're seeing SSDs fail regularly for you, um, I would recommend you start looking at enterprise-based SSDs or even like, you know, higher up along the line and things that are optimized for the task. Because there are SSDs that are optimized for write. There's SSDs that are optimized for read. But the key differentiation between like, traditional three and a half inch drives or two and a half inch spinning drives and SSDs is probably you notice when you boot up your Mac, it boots up way faster than your old Mac Pro used to before you put an SSD in there. Oh yeah, it's like having a new machine. And if you put a Final Cut 10 library on that versus the internal drive, you're gonna see way less latency and you're gonna see a ton of performance. And this is the thing that we've done with the ShareStation which in every share station, we have built in high performance caching into it so that every machine feels like it's connected to the internal drive of your laptop or Mac Pro or whatever it is. It's basically the share station is a giant fusion drive feeding out to your, your work group. So you use the SSD as a caching system? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, which basically gotcha. means that like when you access the volume, it's going to run that data through the SSD. So that's what your clients are really hitting. And, and it's, it's basically, it's using the high performance part of your storage to read what's sitting there on your volume so that your right. customers feel like they're connected to an SSD. And we're using our spinning drives because we have spinning drives because frankly, they're a lot more affordable right. to just feed the SSDs. Right. So we can put, you know, so we're using a blended system to deliver cost-effective basically performance to a work group but you know basically taking advantage of what three and a half inch drives do well which is you can put a lot of stuff on them and using high performance ssds to feed 
the actual responsive machines so that you are getting the experience that you would typically expect to have with a direct attached SSD. So essentially what's happening is the SSD is talking to your spinning platters kind of at full bandwidth uh, in order to pull what the information is that the editor or colorist is asking to pull. And then the SSD is able to drive that much faster than it would be if you're talking to the platters directly. And that's a pretty simplified explanation. So basically, and also when you're doing lots of micro actions, right? If you've noticed sometimes when you're on a spinning disc, things will slow down if you try and do too many things at once to it. Yeah. But that's not the case if you set up your, your caching in, in a certain way. It also works, you need a, the proper file system for this and you need, you know, there's, there's I, I can't even, I, I don't know, my brain sometimes hurts <laughs> because it's not what I, like it's not my background, yeah. you know, but mostly I'm the, I'm the guy that comes in and complains, how come this isn't working? Yep. And, and then, you know, I, I drive Eric and Neil crazy and then eventually we have something that works. Right. And then that's, you know, what goes out to the customer because basically if we can't work with it in the lab, it can't go out to the customer. And so, and there's a lot of combinations of factors because by the way, it's not just your server, it's your adapter. It's their network protocol you're using, whether it's SMB or S, uh, or NFS or AFP, that may have a different performance depending on what your application is. You know, uh, so would that be determined by my NLE, and or is yep. that determined by by like you're walking into an existing setup and you just have to match that setup? So we pre-configure everything to arrive to you with a working NFS and SMB because between share. Right. which all reads from the same volume because between those two protocols, you're going to be able to do whatever you need to do okay. pretty much with every application. Yeah. Um, so for instance, Final Cut 10, you cannot have a library on an SMB or AFP, which is AFP is old, it's going away, but SMB is the new flavor of AFP and you cannot have a Final Cut 10 library on it because it doesn't support hard links. So Final Cut tells you like you can't do what you need to do with it. So you need an NFS share. NFS is notoriously hard to optimize. So we spend a lot of time getting it right. right. And so a lot of times you may have a 10 gig connection connected up over NFS and you're only gonna get 150 megabytes a second out of it because it's not optimized correctly. There's like, and that's what you, it's coming back to, which is like, yeah, this might work on Wall Street, but editors aren't working this way. And that's where you need companies whether it's us or somebody else, you know, if you're going to go out and buy shared storage, whether you buy from us or somebody else, make them show you a demo of what you need to do in your edit room. Do right. not take the spec sheet as something that will be any indication of real world performance for you. Yeah, get, uh, get you know, all your editors and your audio people and your colorists working the way they normally work and, and make sure it actually does what it says it's going to do. I mean, what we do, and, and frankly, it's the best sales tool ever, is we tell people, okay, what applications are you using? Okay. What do you need? What do you expect to be able to do off your system? Okay. We say, send us your own footage, put it on a drive. We will show this to you in real time in our lab coming from our system, performing exactly as you need it to. So this is how you'll know it's going to work. Yeah, and I saw, you know, you have, uh, you shared with me some uh, kind of behind the scenes testimonials of some installations in Europe, and uh, and it was amazing because they ended up bypassing all of their switches, and they're just they're bypassing racks of equipment and plugging right into your gear right from the workstations. And 
you know, they pretty much couldn't, they had a tough time, you know, maxing out that bandwidth um, and dropping frames. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is storage that is designed for creative professionals. Like, this is designed by people who use it for people who use it in the way that they're going to actually be using it in the real world. And I think that's really the only difference between us and the other companies. But uh, now, what about, let's say, ISIS, right? So on, in an Avid installation, I mean, Avid is focused on this market. Uh, do you find you can even outperform Avid on, on their solution? If you were just doing Avid, I wouldn't buy a share station, right. you know? Right. Uh, realistically, that, has, that workflow has nothing to do with bandwidth. We support Avid, and we support bin sharing. But if Avid is the primary objective for what you're doing. I mean, frankly, it's not that performance intensive because you're going to transcode down to DNH, uh, right. you know, whatever. DNX, DNXHD. Yeah, exactly. And and like, it's not a particularly, you don't need a lot of bandwidth for that and it's going to perform just fine. The problem would be if you were to then go out to resolve from your Avid and you needed right. to then beat on it with the original material, which might have been shot with Red or Airy Raw, Right. And you needed to expect that same level of performance. Um, you know, I'll let the Avid guys show you that demo. <laughs> the The truth of the matter is it, it all comes down to what is your workflow. So we basically the way Avid would, would for instance, fit into our workflow is like you have, you have the occasional Avid job. You can work collaboratively with that. You can't do bin locking. And so just to be clear, but you can do bin sharing. Right. And that is more than fine for probably 80% of the Avid editors. And mostly, we our wheelhouse is like, okay, a place gets the occasional Avid job, but uh, they also are very Final Cut Resolve and Premiere heavy. And that's really where they're going, but they, you know, they do Avid because people ask for Avid sometimes. And we support that extremely well. You know? And that is basically, if you're doing a lot of applications... Here's the difference between us and anyone else. The second you say the words Final Cut 10, we're, there's, there's no one that performs like us. Right. And when you say the words resolve, depending on what you're doing, I don't think there's anyone that performs the way we do there either. Right. Uh, especially if you're on the PC side and you need to you know, get between 1,300 and 20, and you're doing 4K DPX or OpenEXR. Like anything else, it comes down to like, what do you need to do? And can you see a demo of this working? And so Avid is, is, is not a very demanding program, quite honestly. So like you don't need a crazy fast server to be able to run the workflow that most people are doing with their Avid. But if you wanted to have your Avid editors working directly with their Resolve colorist in the next room, working with their VFX team in the next room, who's all... DPX and, and EXR related or ProRes XQ, you know, depending on what you're doing. Basically, you're going to need high performing storage. So, uh, so to, because we're approaching about an hour here, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, so, if I'm looking at LumaForge and you've got, you know, a couple different models with different amounts of storage, when I look at those, that storage, is that spinning platters? Is that, or a combination of spinning platters and SSDs that you're, that I'm looking at there. It is a combination of both. Mm -hmm. And and actually the one last thing that I will say is um, we have the, the only the only other thing is it is storage designed 
to also we have rack mounted storage that lives in a server room just fine if you have that you know mm. we and you can build massive things but our indie and our jellyfish are also designed to live in the room with you right. and perform at the same level right. um and that is and work quietly along with you if you've ever been in a server room you know that it is impossible to edit in a server room we have brought shared storage out of the server room and built it in a way where editors can work at an extremely high level with modern media. And in terms of the, uh, every share station, whether it's Jellyfish Indie or our studio line, which is the um, rack mounted uh, storage, it's all built upon the same foundation with the same app, with the same file system, and everything has SSD inside it along with three and a half inch storage and it's basically no matter what you're getting you're getting a fusion drive essentially out to multiple editors that can do all of the things i've just talked about and uh you know it's really just a question of what form factor and what capacity you need for your facility and then let's also talk about what happens when drives fail uh, because they will fail so how does the share station react to that Oh, uh, so here's actually something cool, um, which is actually your data is, so basically if our server crapped out completely, your information would be completely fine if you took those drives out and put it in a different server. Uh, gotcha. our, our data lives on the drive level. Right. So um, depending on what configuration you wanna be, uh, for instance, you know, our indie and our studio, up to four drives can fail on a given out of 20 uh, before you see any data loss. Oh, wow, okay. And it's very easy to replace a drive, you know, so basically it's the sort of thing where like your data's not very much at risk. And then uh, on the Jellyfish, how's that configuration done? So uh, the Jellyfish is our little guy. Uh, you can choose either one or two disks. You know, you can have one or two drives fail before you see any data loss. Have I missed anything? I guess really the, the only thing I think that's truly unique about what we're doing is we have cut through a lot of the gibberish that happens between the application, the computer, the drivers, the connections, and the servers to deliver as close to a plug-and-play experience as you will get on the server side. So... You do not need an IT team to set these up. You can literally, everything comes configured out of the box so you can put the drives in or in the Jellyfish, it comes already shipped and you boot it up, you connect up an app and you mount it and you didn't have to do anything in the terminal. You didn't have to do any, you can literally set up an entire work group in less than an hour. <laughs> That's nice. And, you know, I, I do want to say as we wrap up this conversation then that, uh, uh, you know, in the last week or two, I've managed to connect you with uh, my friend Rich Rodman, who's a DIT out of Tampa, Florida, and uh, he's essentially completely confirmed everything you just told me in terms of how easy it was to set it up. He was able to pre-configure his system and get it tested out before taking it uh, literally to, to WrestleMania. Uh, we're going to be doing a case study on this. Uh, because it was just so successful. He was so happy with it. Uh, where they were running a behind-the-scenes crew of five cameras shooting simultaneously, 
constantly offloading, and he had to have all of that media transcoded uh, by the time he left that evening. And uh, when I spoke to him afterwards, he's like, Patrick, they're like closing the cases on the camera and I'm closing the cases on my computers because I was able to keep up with it all, with all of this stuff being plugged in, all of this media being trans, you know, pulled into the storage while I'm rendering out and doing all the transcoding simultaneously. Um, and, and he was thrilled with it. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to getting that story out there because, uh, you know, maybe I'm sounding a little promotional here, but on the Tower Color, I'm always looking for these great value propositions that solve critical problems. You know, for me, FSI, Flanders Scientific, was one of those four or five years ago who really solved a problem that, you know, the indie yeah, the guy $40,000 monitor. Yeah, know, like. so that you could get for like five or six grand, and, and you knew that it was uh, as good as, as what the big boys had, right? And for me, I, I kind of, and I think I, I wrote this in the intro for the first newsletter that you were sponsoring, which is I kind of look at you guys as potentially being where FSI was five years ago in the shared storage space where you're coming in and solving an annoying problem that none of us really want to deal with. We just want to do our work. And, and you're doing it tailored to a very specific group of people who have high-performance needs and just don't have the budgets to throw away um, and have a big staff tinkering with this stuff. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. I'm, I'm very welcome. And so, Sam, thank you very much for um, spending the time with us here. And where can people find you? If they're interested in what it is we've been talking about, where, where should I send them? Uh, so uh, we are LumaForge.com. Uh, all you really need to do is get in touch with us, and we can do a live demo over Skype for you of all the things I just talked about. And uh, I'll also make sure on the show notes for this over on Tower Color that uh, I put some links to everything you just talked about. Patrick, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome, Sam. Great to have you here. There it is, an interview with Sam Mestman from LumaForge, and I hope you got some information out of this. Personally, I've always found shared storage or storage of any kind to be immensely frustrating. Sometimes it looks like RAM problems. Sometimes it looks like GPU problems. Sometimes it looks like your software is just bugging out on you. And it turns out there was something faulty in your hard drives. And so the fact that someone has come along to try to simplify this for us as our media gets more and more taxing on our, on our hard drives uh, and require more and more high performance as we go to these larger and larger frame sizes. I think it's brilliant and I really wish uh, LumaForge the greatest luck in the world and I hope they are immensely successful. Uh, for TauColor.com, this is Patrick Inhofer and I'll see you next time.